Well, open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 6. Uh, I think it's page 795 in the blue Bibles around you, although I can't see very well up here. It's pretty dark, and my eyes are not the eyes I used to have. And so, yes, page 795. If you don't have a Bible, there's one of these around you. It's page 795. As Jerry said, we're in the third week of our series called Our House. It's all about the different relationships in our lives. And we believe, because God cares about every detail of your life, including your relationships, we believe that he has lots of wisdom and guidance for us and how to, to live out these different relationships. And so what we're doing is comparing the different relationships in our lives to the rooms in a house. You may remember we used this verse from Proverbs 24, uh, by wisdom a house is built and through understanding it is established. Through knowledge its rooms are filled with rare and beautiful treasures. And we all want our relationships, I think, to be rare and beautiful treasures. And so we kicked off this series at the front door. We said the front door represents boundaries in our lives and that it's so important for us to have good boundaries if we're going to have good relationships. Um, And then last week, Jerry, as you just mentioned, did a great job, I thought, of challenging us with the important role we all have in investing in the young people in our lives, and specifically in our own kids or in our church family. And so today, we come to the bedroom, and we're going to talk about the importance of getting a good night's sleep. That's what I really wanted to talk about today, but what we're really going to talk about is what you knew we were going to talk about from the very beginning of this series when we said we were going to talk about the bedroom. We're going to talk about God's wisdom for us when it comes to our romantic relationships, our intimate relationships, whether it's a present relationship or for some of you, it's a relationship you hope to have one day. And I just want to be clear, this is not a marriage sermon. It's not a topic for married people or just people in a relationship. This is a message for all of us. Why is it important for all of us? Well, because the way we treat our body matters. Right from the beginning, I just want to acknowledge that (laughs) this is a pretty controversial topic. Certainly, there are any number of opinions represented even in this room about what is all right, what is acceptable, what is wrong. Please know that our goal today is not to single out any particular behavior or any particular group of people. We all need Jesus. Amen? Okay. But we live in a society and a culture today that places a lot of value on sexuality and especially on freedom and acceptance when it comes to that. And so the question that we we have to open ourselves up to as Christians is, uh, the first question we should always ask, no matter what the topic is as Christians, is what does God have for us? Like not what what do I think, what does culture think, what does my neighbor think, but what does God have? What wisdom and guidance does God have? And in this case, regarding sexuality for those of us who want to follow Jesus in this world. Well, the idea, the big idea for today, uh, maybe you want to write this down for us, is this. Because God cares about my current and future relationships, how I use my body matters. And with that in mind, I want to introduce you to first century Corinth. Corinth was an important city in Greek and Hellenistic and Roman times, a major commercial hub in the ancient world. It was a large city that welcomed lots of travelers on any given day. Corinth was also the home to many magnificent temples. And specifically, there was a temple to the goddess Aphrodite. That temple housed over 1,000 prostitutes. And sex and worship were a daily affair in the temple. They were actually mixed together, worship of Aphrodite with sex. And so it's not a surprise that Corinth was known for its rampant sexual activity. So much so that Plato, uh, Plato the philosopher, not the um, common kid's toy, Plato the philosopher regularly used the term Corinthian girl in his writings when he was talking about a prostitute no matter where she was from. 
The uh, ancient Greek playwright Aristophanes regularly used the phrase to act like a Corinthian as a general reference to any sexual activity outside of marriage. So this is the place we're talking about, Corinth. That's what Corinth was known for. In fact, I think if Corinth had a tagline, it probably would have been something like, what happens in Corinth? stays in Corinth, right? And so (laughs) into this culture, the apostle Paul planted a church. He plants a church in Corinth where many people came to Christ and Paul stayed there for a season, but then he left. But it didn't take long for this church and the people in it to really start to struggle with this culture around him. How do you remain obedient to Christ in the midst of all this sex and debauchery? You probably can't relate, but the people in Corinth could. And so 1 Corinthians is Paul's letter back to the Christians there to encourage them how to live in a very difficult place. I'm going to read through this whole passage, and then we'll break it down here in a minute. 1 Corinthians 6, we're going to start in verse 9. Paul says, Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And this is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I have a right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies." Now, here's the thing when we start talking about a tough subject like, like sex. As I said, even in this room, there are a number of opinions of what's right and what's wrong, what's permissible, what's impermissible. And so there's probably about three camps in this room right now. There's the, man, am I glad we're finally talking about this. I've been wanting to know uh, what this church believes about sex and sexuality. There's those of you in this camp. For those of you who are here in that, I'm glad you're here. Um, second, There's a group of you in this room that need to know this, that need to know what scripture has to say about sex because you're in a relationship for the first time or for the first time in a long time, you're single or newly single, and you're about to make some decisions that are gonna have an impact on the rest of your life. And then there's the third group. And the third group is, uh, there's a group of people that are probably gonna hear what we have to say and you're gonna get mad. And some people are probably even going to leave. And I don't want that, but I know that that's a consequence of what happens when you tell the truth. But here's what I want to ask. If you're in that third group, we have some relational equity, right? You and me, hopefully if you've been here any length of time, we've talked, uh, you know me, I know you. We like each other, I hope, right? You, you, I hope you like me. Maybe you don't. Maybe you're really glad Jerry's taken over. That's fine. Um, but if we have any relational equity at all, you and me, I'm going to cash in every bit of it right now. And I'm going to ask that no matter what I say during the sermon, No matter what I say to make you mad, no matter what I say that you think is wrong, 
that you'll at least stay and hear the end of the service. Deal? Is that a deal? So just nod your head if you agree, all right? So if I see you get up at any point, everybody's like, man, I hope I don't have to go to the restroom now during the service. <laughs> okay, okay, good, deal. Okay, I wanna pray and then we'll break this passage down. Would you pray with me? Father God, we know that you have wisdom for all these relationships, but for some reason, and I think your scripture tells us why, this one about sex is just hard. It's harder for us. And so would you just soften our hearts right now? Lord, as you've done with me this week, just help me to hear, help us to hear what you have to say, what your wisdom is. As a God who created us and created sex, would you help us to hear um, your wisdom about uh, how we should treat our bodies? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, and so what I'm going to do, I'm going to go back through this verse and break it down, and then we'll just uh, we'll have some commentary on it, and hopefully this will be helpful for, for those of us in this room. It was helpful for me this week as I was preparing. Uh, go back to 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Paul says, Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men. Now, Paul is recognizing here in a culture that is so strong and has so much influence, so much pull, it's easy to be deceived. And so he says, do not be deceived. He's reminding the church, remember what he's doing is he's writing to the church, to Christians in a very sexually charged culture. He's reminding the church, you are called to a distinct life, to, to a higher calling. So if Paul were here on this stage today and he were talking to you individual specifically as part of the church, he would say, you have a higher calling. You don't need to get sucked into culture. He says, don't call yourself a Christian and then allow evil influences outside the church to permeate your lives. Okay, that's what he's saying. It's easy to be deceived. And Paul is calling out specific behaviors here. Now, does this mean if you fail at any of these behaviors or that they're part of your past, then you're disqualified that you won't inherit the kingdom of God? Emphatically, no. Okay, these are not unforgivable sins. Paul instead is referring to people who persist in certain behaviors. He's making a point about people who find their identity in these actions and anything other than Jesus with no remorse about personal sin. All right, so what types of sin? Well, Paul does specifically call out homosexual acts. He says these are sinful. But not just that. He calls out all types of sexual immorality. In fact, the word Paul uses here for the sexually immoral is the Greek word porneia. Hmm, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? You probably know a word that's, that sounds like porneia. He's talking about any sexual act outside the bounds of one man and one woman united in marriage. So sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend is sexually immoral. So is watching pornography. So is going outside your marriage for sex. Paul says all of those behaviors are the same. They're grouped into the same category. But let's not miss that in the next verse, Paul also calls out the greedy and the drunkards and the slanderers and the idolaters and the swindlers. Paul loves his people in his church. And he wants to remind them that God loves all people. Jesus died on the cross to pay for every sin and every sinner. And that's all of us. We are broken people living in a broken world. And I don't care how good you think you are, if you had to stand before God today strictly on your own merits, you would fail. I would fail. We would be found guilty. We would all stand guilty before God. But God, who is rich in mercy saw our sorry state 
and sent his only son, Jesus, to die on our behalf so that anyone who follows after him has eternal life. And there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so what Paul is doing is he's not condemning the people, he's condemning the actions. He's condemning the ongoing practice. All right, verse 11 says this, and that is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. These examples are most likely the former lifestyles that some of the people in this church were caught up in. If you think about the culture and the people that would have come into the church, what kind of people would you attract? If you set up a church in Las Vegas, what kind of people would you attract? You would probably attract a lot of people that were from the entertainment industry, right? And so that's what Paul is talking about here. Now, remember, even secular authors and historians describe Corinth as a place of rampant immorality. But Paul says, this is what you were, This is what you were, but then Christ came into your life. And when Christ comes into your life, you're a new creation. He says you are sanctified. In other words, you're set apart by God. You were justified. In other words, you are made right with God. Jesus took our punishment and set us free. And if you've been caught in sexual sin, maybe you're thinking, but Steve, what if that happened after I became a Christian? Like, what if I became a Christian and I was made a new creation and then I still had sexual sin in my life? Well, it doesn't matter. When Jesus went to the cross for you, all of your sin was future sin. But he died for all of it. He paid for all of it. Verse 12, I have a right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Now, Paul uses a couple of phrases here that would have been well known by the culture. He, he talks about this attitude of whatever, do you do whatever is best for you. You, you do what you want. You, you get what you need. For those living in Corinth, sex had become nothing more than a physical transaction. Right? And I think in our culture, it's kind of the same. It's a, it's a physical transaction. We have buried or we cast aside the, the spiritual connection that comes with sex, and we've made it merely like it's a swapping of favors, right? And when you hear it talked about in culture so much, that's what they talk about. And so Paul's writing to the Christians living there to remind them what he had already taught them, that your body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And he's talking about Jesus, He's meant for the Lord. He created you. He created your body. And when you came to trust him, when you came to trust Christ, he pronounced you free. You are free to live for Christ. Now, there's freedom, but it's not freedom to do whatever you want, he reminds them. He said it's freedom to live for Christ. You're free from the bondage of that sin. And then he reminds them, hey, you're not just a physical being. You're a spiritual being too. They're both important. He says your body's not made for sexual immorality. You are made for the Lord. He cares about your body because he cares about He made you, and he cares about your current and future relationships. And you may think, hey, as long as it's between two consenting adults, it's not hurting anyone. But the problem is we can't see the future. We can't see what those future relationships will be like. And the things we don't know, Paul's going to point that out next. In fact, listen to how many times he uses the phrase, do you not know? All right, in the rest of this verse, listen to this. I'm just going to read through the rest of it. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know? that your bodies are members of Christ himself. Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. 
All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Do you not know? The implication there is you already know, right? And isn't there a difference between knowing what is right and doing what is right? But Paul reminds us, do you not know? You already know this. Paul starts off reminding us that this body is the one body we have. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute because Paul reminds us that that, that sexual sin affects our body. And this body is the one that he says, God raised Jesus from the dead. He, He reminds people, God raised the Lord from the dead. He raised his physical body. In fact, if you know your scripture very well, you know that when Jesus appeared to Thomas, Thomas didn't believe it was Jesus. And what did Jesus do? He had him touch the wounds in his hands and his feet to prove it was him. It was Jesus's body that was resurrected. His glorified body, yes, but it was his body. The fact that God raised his physical body says something about the value he places on our physical bodies. And he goes on to remind us, Paul does, of the truth revealed in Genesis 2, that when a man and woman have sex, they become one flesh. They're united together. And I think that's why divorce is so painful. I think that's why a breakup is painful if there's been a sexual relationship. One writer suggested, go outside on a day when it's 20 degrees below zero and stick your tongue to the metal flagpole. When you leave, you will leave something of yourself behind. You can deny it and say, it doesn't hurt, but it hurts. Then Paul reminds us as Christians that we are united with Christ, that we are part of his body, and we shouldn't bring his body into sexual immorality. In fact, the word that he uses in this text, he says, shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? That word, take, is a word, it's a powerful word. It means to wrench or to pull away to forcefully remove. He says, shall I then take the members of Christ away from him and unite them with a prostitute? There's there's an implication there that if you're going to be united with a prostitute, if you're going to run into sexual immorality, you have to be wrenched away from Christ, right? In order to pursue sexual immorality, you've got to become not one with God anymore. The implication, of course, is that we shouldn't do that. So what's the answer? Paul says, flee. Flee from sexual sin. Run away from sexual sin. He goes on to say, no other sin affects the body like sexual sin. Paul makes a very clear distinction here between sexual sin and every other type of sin. And in the church, we do that too, but we do it for the wrong reasons. We tend to say sexual sin is worse than any other sin, but Paul doesn't say that. He says it's different because of the way it affects our body. Satan uses sexual sin as a weapon because he knows the effect it has on us and on our body. Your body is a temple for the Holy Spirit. You all know that verse. You probably use it when you're thinking about food and what you should eat or when you're thinking about exercise, but we don't often associate it with sexual immorality, but that's the context in which Paul originally used it. He says, you belong to God. Christ paid a physical price when he laid down his body so that you could have your body. And he says, you are not your own. You are bought with a price. This is the heart of following Jesus. At at, at its very core, the idea, the, the decision to follow Jesus means that every day we lay down our life and surrender everything that we have to Jesus Christ, that he purchased my life so that I can live for him. 
And part of living for him means what I do with my body matters. Now, here's what I want you to see. When it comes to sex, all of us have a moral code, right? My moral code may be different than your moral code. It's true that no matter how permissive we are or no matter how restrictive we are, each of us has a line somewhere, right? We all have a line that if someone were to cross that line, we would somehow inherently know that was wrong, right? All of us have that. And your line may be different than my, my line, but at some point, somebody would do something to us or to someone else or to someone we love, and you would say, that's wrong. You shouldn't do that. And, and, and we didn't make that code up. Like, I didn't come up with my own moral code. It comes from somewhere. So the question is, where do we get our direction from? Where does our moral code come from? If we have a code, where do we get it? Well, we primarily get it from one of two places. We'll either get it from culture or we'll get it from our religion, in our case, from Scripture. Now, this is the issue that uh, comes up when we talk about homosexuality, particularly in the church, because what culture has done is they have made homosexuality an identity issue. They have said, this is who you are. You'll hear people who are homosexual say, this is who I am. This is how God made me. This is who I am. But the truth is your culture doesn't, or your your identity doesn't come, shouldn't come from whom you love or who you're attracted to, right? There's so much more about you than who you're attracted to and who you love. In fact, I would say if you're a follower of Jesus, your identity doesn't doesn't come from who you love, but it comes from who loves you that you are a child of God, that you are a follower of Jesus, you're a Christian. But, but what I want to suggest from you is that we shouldn't rely on culture for our moral code because culture always changes. I'm going to give you a couple of examples. If you lived in the South in the early 1800s, slavery was a widespread practice. It was readily accepted by culture and society. It was readily accepted by many factions of the church. It was a means to an end. It had a lot of societal benefits. It was an economic driving force. But even so, after a while, some people started to realize this was wrong. This behavior of humans owning other humans was wrong. Who were these people that realized that? Well, it was mostly Christians, specifically Baptists and Methodists. And it happened in great part because of what's now known as the Second Great Awakening. The Baptists and Methodists started preaching in their churches, even in the South, about the evils of slavery, and eventually it was outlawed, and the Civil War came about as a result. In that case, culture was wrong. Scripture was right. Or let's say you were living in Germany in the 1930s, and it was common in culture to assume that Jews were evil, deceitful people, and it was okay to discriminate and even have them killed. But if you read your Bible, it teaches about the... uh, the inherent value of every person and each person being made in the image of God and having value in the eyes of God. Culture was wrong. Scripture was right. We've all come to realize that now, in those cases especially. The the question we need to ask when it comes to sexuality and living in this world is, is Scripture wrong or is culture wrong? Because one of us has it wrong. The question that I need to ask is, do I expect God to alter his course to better meet my needs? Or am I going to alter my course and let my beliefs and my understanding be determined by God and what his word has to say about it? So much to take away um, and consider as Christians. Uh, Understanding how we view our bodies is going to affect our current relationships as well as our future relationships. It's also going to affect our commitment to Christ in this world. And so before we get to the conclusion here, before we do that, I want to make one thing clear. God created sex. Sex is not a product of a fallen world. 
It was created by God. In fact, it was the very first command given to the very first people in the Garden of Eden. I don't know if you know this, but the very first command God gave to his people was be fruitful and multiply. And there was no other way to do that. It wasn't like after the fall, God was like, well, I guess I better come up with something to help them have fun together. Uh, That was the command, be fruitful and multiply. God created sex and he loves sex and not just for procreation. He loves sex because he loves to give us pleasure. He loves sex because as the Bible says, it binds us together. It creates intimacy between two people. But just like you wouldn't start a fire in your living room outside the context of a fireplace that you knew could contain it, it's dangerous and irresponsible to have sex outside the context for which God designed it. In fact, I love the way pastor and author Tim Keller says this. He says, sex outside of marriage lacks integrity. You're asking someone to do with their body something you're not willing to ask them to do with their whole life, with their whole heart. So what if I'm single? What if I'm a teen? What if I experience same-sex attraction? What if if I'm not being sexually satisfied in my marriage? How am I supposed to have my needs met? Well, the first thing to remember is that sex is a desire. It's not a need. It's a very strong desire for some people, but it's not a need. Let me show you what I mean. How long can you live without oxygen? A few minutes maybe, right? How long could you live without water? A few days? How long could you live without food? Some of us probably longer than others, but maybe a month, maybe two. Now, how long can you live without sex? Despite whatever smart aleck comment you have in your head right now, the answer is forever. Jesus died a 33-year-old virgin And scripture tells us, Hebrews 4 says, he was tempted like us in every way. And yet he was the most fully human who ever lived. But let's get real practical. If I want to have integrity in this area of sexual purity, what do I need to do when these sexual desires hit? In other words, if I'm not married or I'm not getting what I desire out of my marriage, what do I do? Three things real quick. Number one is to recognize the triggers. Often sexual desire is not about sex at all. Many people experience strong sexual desire when they're hungry or tired or stressed or depressed. And so when an urge hits you, step back and think, what just happened? What what am I feeling right now? What's causing this to happen? What am I going through? And then look for a pattern. Don't indulge every desire that comes along. When you do that, um, you're wrenching yourself away from Christ. Hopping into bed with somebody or turning on pornography, that's just a shortcut. It's a cheap substitute for the real intimacy that comes from sexually uh, committed relationship in a marriage relationship. So just to give you an example, let's say that my wife decided she wanted a coach handbag. She doesn't. She's not, 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 not like that, not that there's anything wrong with that, but there's two ways I could go about getting her a coach handbag. I could save up money and for the $250 for the actual Prairie Satchel and signature card, She might like that. She might not. Or two weeks ago, I was in Myanmar. I was walking through the market. They had them there for seven bucks. (laughs) 10,000 shot. (laughs) I wouldn't dare buy the one in Myanmar. Why? Because within a few days of bringing it home, it would start to unravel and fall apart. It was a cheap imitation. Don't accept a cheap imitation. Don't take a shortcut. God cares about your current and future relationships. So what you do with your body matters. The second thing to do 
after you look for the triggers is to put guardrails in place. We, we've talked about this before, but it's important to have some rules that you put in place in your relationships before you reach the point of temptation. Lying on the couch, watching a movie at midnight is not a good place to start thinking about guardrails. You're probably already past them. You need to do that before. A story is told of a stagecoach company who was hiring drivers to take its teams of horses over a dangerous mountain pass. And so they were looking for the best drivers. And so they, uh, the interviewer brings in the first candidate and says, how close can you get to the edge of the cliff without driving our team over the edge? And the driver says, I'm such a talented driver, I can get within three feet of the edge of the cliff without taking your team over. The interviewer thanks him for his time and sends him on his way. The second candidate comes in, and the interviewer asks him the same question. How close can you get our team to the edge of the cliff without driving the horses over the edge? And the candidate says, I am such a talented driver, I could get the team within one foot of the edge of the cliff without putting them in danger. The interviewer thanks him for his time and sends him on his way. The third candidate comes in, and the interviewer asks him the same question. How close can you drive to the edge of the cliff without driving our team over the edge? And the candidate said, ooh, I don't know. I'm not real sure of myself in that situation. I would try to keep as far away from the edge as I could. And he got the job. You know, the important idea behind a guardrail is to keep us on the road. It's not to see how close we can get. So uh, make sure you understand the triggers, put guardrails in place. And then third, if you experience these sexual desires outside of marriage, tell someone, get help. Talk to a trusted friend, talk to a counselor, a youth leader, a pastor. Don't try to go through this alone. We have way too many resources to help you in this, and your current and future relationships are too valuable to risk them to just keep sliding along. Colossians 3 tells us, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry, because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways, the life you once lived. Here's what I want to tell you today. All this that I just talked about, what I say about sex and sexuality, it doesn't really matter. If you want to wrestle with something, wrestle with what God has to say about sex and sexuality. Would you take some time this week to truly wrestle with what God says about it? Would one step in your journey of becoming more like Christ be to read some passages on sexual impurity and just roll around for a while in what God has to say about it? There's passages like Colossians 3 that I just read, or 1 Thessalonians 4, or Ephesians 5. But as we wrap up, I just want to talk to one more group out there. There's a group of people for whom this message is particularly hard because someone took something from you. Someone used their body to violate yours. Somebody molested you. Someone touched you without permission. They forced something on you that you didn't want. They raped you. And you've never been able to let that go. And now you feel like you're too broken. You're too dirty. You're too damaged. I just want you to know today, you are not damaged goods. You are not too far gone. There is hope. You are not alone. You, you too were bought at a price. Your body that you thought was violated and cast aside was picked up and paid for by the death of Christ. Your body has been redeemed by the same power that raised him from the dead. Look, we have all 
fallen short in this area. I think it's safe to say that all of us have sinned sexually or all of us will. But the good news for us is that we have a God who made us and is crazy about us. That we have a redeemer in Christ who died in our place. And we have a Holy Spirit who will lead us and give us the power we need to say no to sexual immorality and yes to being united in Christ. God, I'm so thankful that you sent the only rescuer who could rescue us. You sent the only person who could be our refuge in Jesus. And Lord, I'm just so uh, convicted as I think about um, all the places where I fall short in my life. And Lord, I look out over this crowd and I think about all of us and our brokenness and our sin and our shame that we have over that. And you look at us and you say, no, hey, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Jesus, I just hear your voice very calmly and lovingly whispering, now go and sing them. Lord, that's our prayer. Would you walk with us? Would your spirit guide us? Would you lead us in the ways we should go as we go our way this week? God, thank you for your rescue. Thank you for your son, Jesus. And it's in his powerful name that we pray.